presence of God transforms lives and heals hearts. Let's learn today truths on how we can access His presence and release heaven into our daily lives. Welcome to Manifest His Presence with your host, Dr. Candace Smithyman. Hello. Hi, everybody. Uh, This is Pastor Adam again, and I'm looking out my window in this beautiful day the Lord has created here in my home in Florida, in the Jacksonville, Florida area. And uh, my wife is gone. Candace is on the road doing ministry in Los Angeles right now, and she'll be in Washington State in a few days and won't be back for till next week. It's a Friday here. It's Friday, the 14th of April, 2023. And so I am really excited about this opportunity I have to share something with you. And so let's, let's begin by going to the Lord first. Father, we thank you for this day and we are grateful. And Father, you are aware of these things that I'm going to share that I believe are so pleasing to you. And Father, I pray that it will agitate people to the point that they will change that they will grasp something and they may get so upset that they're going to realize as they look in the mirror going, oh my gosh, I'm not fulfilling what the Lord has for me to do. So Father, I thank you for this and ask for your continued blessings over those listening and those receiving this in the mighty and matchless name of your son, Yeshua Yamashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Now, I'm going to begin today with, with what I think or I'm calling a summation for what a Christian believes, or at least this is what the scriptures declare what it means to be a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian. If you've surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ, admitted you need him as your Lord and Savior, repented, and and asked for continued grace and mercy as you deal with every day. So the gospels declare that because of what Jesus' finished work work for us, we already have all the justification, approval, security, love, worth, meaning, and and rescue we so desperately long for and look for in a thousand different people in a thousand different places. The gospel further announces that God doesn't relate to us based on our feats for Jesus, but on Jesus's feats for us, which was dying on the cross, shedding his blood. Now, because Jesus came to secure for us what we could never secure for ourselves, life doesn't have to be a tireless effort to establish ourselves, to justify ourselves, to validate ourselves. Jesus came to rescue us from the need to be right, that need to be constantly rewarded, the need to be regarded, the need to be respected. Jesus came to relieve us of the burdens we inherently feel to get it done. Now, The Word of God, the Gospel, announces that it's not on me to ensure the ultimate verdict on my life is pass and not fail. So I guess what this means then is we don't have to transform the world to matter. We don't have to get good grades to secure our own worth. We don't have to be a success to justify our existence. I mean, I guess, in other words, because Jesus was strong for us, we're free to be weak. Because Jesus was someone, he's everything, we're free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, we're free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for us, we're free to fail. Because Jesus won for us, we're free to lose. Okay. <laughs> now, if, if, if it's true that Jesus paid it all, that it's finished, 
that my value, my worth, my security, my freedom, my justification, and so on is forever fixed, then do we have to do anything while we're here on earth? Because I guess what I'm getting at, folks, is if all that I just said is true, and it is true, then why do we have to do anything if all of that is true? In other words, here's another way to say what I just, all that dialogue, that diatribe I just gave. In other words, does the grace of God undercut ambition? Does the gospel, does that mean it weaken our effort? Okay. I started with that today because it's very troubling to me when I hear people share things like that and without realizing it, they actually live the Christian life like that. They live like they don't have any power to overtake darkness and they hide from this sick, evil world. So I'm going to throw something out there today. Here it is. What would happen if a generation of Christians would rise up and see that they are to invade territory that really belongs to us, that unfortunately, some be many before them thought it belonged to the Satan and his minions and had to stay in the Satan's possession until Jesus returned? What if Christians suddenly understood that all of this Christian transition was for us to obey God in those areas of this world that the demonic has authority and rule and grasp this understanding that God said those, like, those in my areas and those are his areas. All of these things on the world, in the world today are God's. And he and God wants you and I, he wants Christians to take authority over those areas from the demonic. I'm throwing that out there. Is, is that? Because that's the way I see the Bible. Folks, the truth is this. Gospel grace, this grace that we so love and so embrace and so throw around for every issue going on, actually empowers risk-taking effort and neighbor-embracing love. You know what? The thing that prevents us from taking great risk is the fear that if we don't succeed, we'll lose out on something we need in order to be happy. Way too many of us live like we are playing our cards close to the chest. I'm talking about in our relations. I'm talking about in our vocations, like those, those areas that we do business. And I'm talking about spiritually. We, we tend to measure our investments carefully because you know what? We need a return. And we're afraid to give our time, talent, treasure, and testimony unless we're going to get some kind of return. You know what? It's because mainly we don't do it because it might not work out. And by golly, we need it to work out, don't we? But Christians, hey, listen, I thought everything we need in Christ, we already possess. So therefore, why in the world can't we take great risks? Why can't we push harder? Why can't we go farther? Why can't we leave it all on the field today without fear? I'm, I, I'm trying to get us to understand. In other words, we can invest our time, our talent, our treasure, and our testimony with reckless abandon because we don't need to ensure a return of success and love and meaning and validation and approval. 
I mean, another way, a simpler way to say all that's been said so far is this would be this idea of dying to self. We can die to self every day. Now, now here is the rub, I guess. Here's where the rubber meets the road, in other words. Can we live like this? I mean, can you? This is where we got to ask this. Like, can you live this way? Do we realize, can we comprehend that these areas that we do not occupy in this world, in the, let's, if, wherever you're at, whatever country you're at, if you're upset with how the country's going, in those can, do we realize, folks, that those areas we do not occupy allows a vacuum, if you will, for hell to fill it, and you and I will be responsible for what happens on our watch. We, uh, we can invest freely and forcibly with our time, talent, and treasure and testimony because, folks, here's the deal. We've been freely and forcefully invested in already by Yeshua. He didn't die for us to sit around and wait for him. He died for us so we could go occupy, right? That's why I titled this, this today, Devoted to Occupy. See, this, this never-ending fear thing that we decide to bow down to instead of faith, right? The fear of not knowing whether I'll get a return, I'm telling you, folks, it's replaced when you've put your trust in Jesus by the freedom of knowing, of knowing we've already won. We have everything. Because every single thing we need, we already possess because of what Jesus did. We just aren't acting it out. We don't have enough faith. And see, we're now free to do everything for others without needing anyone to do anything for me. I mean, process this, folks. In other words, we can now actively spend our life giving instead of taking. We, here, folks, we can, we can go to the back of the line instead of getting to the front. We can sacrifice ourselves for others instead of sacrificing others for ourselves. The gospel, the word of God alone liberates us to live a life of scandalous generosity, unrestrained sacrifice, uncommon valor, and unbounded courage. See, here's the deal. When you don't have anything to lose, you discover something wonderful. You're free to take great risks without fear or reservation. It's living by faith. It's the difference between approaching life from our acceptance and not for our acceptance. Right? It's looking at that glass. It's got, it's, it's, is it half full or half empty? It's the difference between approaching life from love and not for love. And our day-to-day actions reveal where we stand on this understanding. I mean, if you're telling the world you're a Christian, but you're not living that way, do you see how confusing that is to the world? And I realize the scriptures proclaim that God is gracious, but many struggle to believe it while others wonder, well, what in the world does grace actually look like? If we take seriously the righteousness of God and the utter reality of our sin every day, we might find ourselves asking God this, do you still love me? Or why are you so patient with me, God? Or why haven't you killed me for what I've done, God? See, as our hatred for and our awareness of our sin increases, we desperately need a reminder of the biblical view of the grace of God. We need to see the God of the scriptures who is so gracious it blows our minds, bringing us to tears, brings us to repentance. For instance, 
And the prophet Micah shared something neat here that it's recorded in Micah chapter six. And it's, it's talking about the warped view that the Israelis, the Hebrews had of God. In verses one through five, the Lord offers a tender rebuke to the people and he asks, well, what have I done to you? So God reminds them of how he delivered them out of the hand of Egypt and other righteous acts he's done on their behalf. And then the people respond and their response in verses six and seven of Micah chapter six is dumbfounding. (laughs) But you know what? It sounds so familiar to what we do. Let's read this. Just follow along in Micah chapter six, verses six and seven. If, If you have your Bibles, follow that along or open up your Bible app. So here's what the word says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Okay. I'm telling you, what we just heard and read is the people not responding in gratitude as they're exposing themselves. And whether they intended to or not, they paint this picture of God that makes God seem demanding, cruel, and basically impossible to satisfy. And that view of God, folks, does not line up with reality. But but I think a lot of people have that view. And if we're honest, we are all too familiar with that view that the Hebrews shared there of God because you and I do this all the time to God as well. Let me, let me try and expand on this a little bit. Have you ever had a view of God, of some angry father sitting on the throne, appalled and shocked that you had sinned again? Have you ever had a view that God was impatient, that he's angry, that he's completely disappointed in you? Do you think that our heavenly father lives in constant frustration with his rebellious children? I'm pretty confident we all do, we all have. Well, part of how we view God's grace is often birthed out of our own experience with each other and how we have been taught about God. Whether it's, you know, when you're a kid, your parents, right? Uh, Relatives, a general view of mankind, our experience with sinful and broken people affects our view of our holy and righteous God. Here's the, here's the blunt truth. We are so blatantly unacquainted with grace, mercy, and truth that's, that, see, that's untainted by sin. Let me say that again. We're blatantly unacquainted with grace, mercy, and faith that's untainted by sin. See, humanly speaking, though we've experienced grace, we've never met a person that emboldened grace perfectly. Why? Because we've filtered it through sin, because all of us sin. Not a single one of us hasn't. Every one of us sins. So, when, like when I reflect on how we love and show grace, two things stand out about our motivation to forgive. And this is just two. There's more, but these are two things I've noticed. One of them is that natural man, right, just us people, are motivated to be gracious because we're aware to some extent that we're just as guilty as the person that needs grace, 
because we've probably done that thing. Are we understanding? The other thing is us, people, forgive others because we often only know a small piece of all the other person is actually guilty of. Now, okay, so those are just two things. I'm sure there are more human motivations for showing grace, but from those two alone that I just gave, we discover two factors that play enormous parts in our ability to forgive our own sin and ignorance. So when we process what I just said, those, those two things, it's kind of mind-blowing because God, folks, God is neither motivated by his own sinfulness nor enabled by his ignorance. In other words, we don't process this through God's lens, but through our own lens. And that's the problem. That's, that's the issue. Folks, God is holy and righteous, completely void of sin and full of goodness and love. He's never made a mistake and can do anything but fail. He's perfect in all his ways. There is no moral compass that could measure how, how upright and blameless God is. Okay, I mean, this is just like, listen, come on, folks. But nevertheless, when we, his sinful and rebellious prodigal children, spit in his face, wallow in our sin, grieve his Holy Spirit, he calls us to repentance with open and loving arms saying, you're welcome, come on home. He's not ignorant of all the ways we've sinned against him, right? He knows everything we've ever done and will do and, is, and he's still able to stomach it. His knowledge of who we really are will never, ever hinder his love for us. He's, listen to this, he's even aware of the evil behind our righteous deeds. Oh, come on, folks. The intimacy by which the Lord knows us but is able to lovingly embrace us as his children, it's supernatural. And every time I think of this reality, I'm brought, I'm brought to like tears because we serve a God whose love and grace baffle us. His ways are not our ways, right? This, this grace thing is distinct to the Christian faith, to the Judeo-Christian thing, this faith. No other religion emphasizes divine grace the way the Bible does. This is why reading the Bible and communing, communing with God is essential to our Christian maturity. Folks, the less we read and pray and speak the words of the Bible, the more blemished our view of God becomes. If you want the grace of God to blow your mind again and again, read the Bible. That is why we should learn to live a lifestyle devoted to Jesus. For instance, if we were to outline the book of Hebrews, you know, if we did a study on the entire book of Hebrews, you'd see that from basically chapter four to through verses to through chapter 10, four to 10, the author of the book of Hebrews is building an extensive argument for the high priesthood of Yeshua. 
And at the conclusion of that argument, the next section begins with the words, therefore, brothers, since. That's, that's chapter 10, verse 19. All before that, from chapter 4 to chapter 10, verse 18. And then in the next verse, therefore, brothers, since. In other words, here's what the author is trying to communicate. He's saying, if everything I've just said about Jesus is true in the last six chapters, then you ought to live in the following ways. Then he gives multiple ways to live. And the first is first way is this in Hebrews 10, verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is simply saying that we are to live a lifestyle of devotion. See, the scriptures here are painting a picture of what a devotional life looks like. I know many times we'll say things like, you know, and we get in our our circles of Christian friends or other people or maybe just ourselves or our family or spouse or, you know, trusted friends. And we'll go, you know, I got to make some change. I got to be more devoted. I got to do my devotions. Well, the author here uses the word heart twice in verse 22. Now, for the Christian, a lifestyle of devotion shouldn't be reduced only to an activity or daily routine. A lifestyle of devotion, apparently, according to Scripture, is characterized by a heart that's owned by Christ. Our devotional life shouldn't be only slatted into a daily schedule after our morning workout and before we start our workday. No, our devotional life is meant to shape the way we think about ourselves, our families, our body, our job, our church, our social circle, the neighborhoods, right? Our calendar, our budget, everything. And and I don't think anyone would admit this, but what we really do, and maybe you'd admit it, because I think if you get more and more into the word of God, you become more humble and less prideful. Because what we really do, folks, is we try to cram Jesus into our heart already filled with selfish idols and personal hobbies. We, we give, let's just be honest, we give Jesus the leftovers. And we've shared much about the issues and problems, but, you know, up to this point in this, but, but folks, what's the solution? Because it's not to restructure your schedule and free up 20 more minutes for Bible study, although, hey, that's a good thing. That's great. That's helpful. But here's the deal. Rather, every morning, how about we make a heartfelt confession that much of our devotion is still for the things of this world and not for the Lord as we step out of bed? <laughs> how about that? And go, no, I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to make God the focus. I mean, one of the greatest challenges for us, all of us, is to maintain a solid, consistent, personal devotion life. Because failing there, we fail where it counts the most. And yet, the more successful and complicated life gets, the harder it can be to break away from the demands and the busyness and simply focus our attention on living out our Christianity in the day-to-day issues. You know, if there's one thing I've learned It's that everything flows out of our personal relationship with the Lord. Not your spouse's personal relationship, not your pastor's personal relationship, not your best friend's personal relationship with the Lord, but yours. I've learned. 
that the inner life is way more essential than what the outward life looks like, that our private walk with God is infinitely more important than our public ministry for God. I've learned that personal revival takes precedence over corporate revival. And, you know, I'm just speaking for myself. It was very, very tempting for me, for those, all those years I was a pastor, for those 15 years, to put all my emphasis on the works of ministry. I'm talking about, you know, the preaching, the teaching, the, the small group meetings, the pastoring, the shepherding, the, the witnessing, the, the visiting the, the people that were sick, the, you know, being a good uh, and godly parent for my children, making, making disciples of all the people that come into my sphere. You know, that the time we had to build and build that, do that build out for that church, that 33,000 square foot facility in 2015 and 16, right? And it's so easy during those times to neglect private devotion to the Lord. You know, what about, you know, this concept of intimacy with Jesus for the sake of intimacy thing? You know, what about that? Let me, let me briefly touch on this intimacy thing here. Our current culture, due to social media, has trapped people, especially the young, because it's such a part of their life since it's, they're growing up with it. For those, of course, my age, I'm 59, those in, you know, that were born before the 90s, this wasn't something you had growing up, but anybody born in the, you know, late, mid 90s and beyond, they've had this stuff, you know, when they became teenagers. See, intimacy has fundamentally changed its meaning. Intimacy used to be that we would share the challenges and victories of everyday life together, okay? But not so anymore. Now, intimacy is, th- is this, into me, see? That's what intimacy is. It's into me. It's all about the self. The social network thing has made every single person a celebrity in their own minds. That means... We're going to share with each other our intimate life, not our hurts like it used to be. See, we used to share victories and hurts. That's a whole other thing in how we live, every, live each day. I mean, today, that's all you get is everybody sharing their hurts. Right? We, sh- we would share our intimate life, but face-to-face with family, friends, over whatever meetings. But now... It's a never-ending 24-7, 365 days a year, 366 every fourth year of look what happened to me. Every thought, every emotion, everything. It's created a situation where the romantic ideal at this moment is one in which we're asking one person to give us what once an entire community used to provide. It's created a level of narcissism we have never experienced and its consequences are disastrous. And it's happening right before our eyes. When, when we take this spirituality, then, you know, okay, we bring that in. What about deepening our relationship with the master simply for the sake of that relationship? <laughs> What about pursuing the imitation of God in our lives as a goal in itself and not just as a tool for more effective ministry? 
The problem, of course, is that the responsibilities of life and, you know, often carry us along with the force of their demands. This new into me, see, replacing the real intimacy drives us to action away from devotion to the Lord because it's all about me. I got to get my post out there. I got to talk and tell everybody about what's going on with me. How, how in the world can we resist this tendency? It's, it's, it's an incredible thing. It's gone on and it's, it's here. It's undeniable. How can we make our relationship with God the highest priority of our lives? How, how can we experience personal revival and how can we sustain that life of passion, fire, and renewal? Now, no doubt, our works for the Lord are important. Faith without works is dead, right? Okay? We are called to, to witness to people, to win souls, to set the captives free, to bear fruit that will last, to make an impact for the king. But folks, if our foundations are not secure and our roots are not deep, many of our works will go up in flames. We've, we have read about Christian leaders that backslide while preaching to thousands upon thousands. What, what I'm saying is it's possible to grow cold while serving in a red-hot revival, folks. It's, it's possible to leave your first love while working for Jesus on the mission field. I've met people that have admitted it. And so we, folks, we must learn to maintain personal revival in the valley as well as on the mountaintop. And you've got to be able to rely on yourself to get it, to go there when it gets rough, as well as when there's victories. One of the most striking passages to teach us this lesson is found in Luke chapter 5. Look at Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Now the, the Bible says, Now the news about Jesus was spreading farther, and large crowds kept gathering to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray in seclusion. How extraordinary. These people wanted to hear what Jesus had to say, and they needed to be healed. And Jesus had what they needed. And Jesus, we read multiple times in the scriptures, was often moved by compassion to heal the sick, which would have pulled him to the crowds, not away from them. Yet, what did we just read? He would withdraw often to desolate places and pray. So what does that say to you and I, especially those of us who seem to have an endless stream of people to minister and needs to meet? All this has only been multiplied in the digital age and through social media. I can tell you folks for myself, when this phone thing happened and, and I got, I didn't never, I, I, I fought getting a phone. I finally got one. It was the military made me get one about 20 years ago. And then I was in a position of leadership. I had to have one. Oh, did I hate it? But then when we started ministry, Oh gosh, it, it, it was tough for me because I would get contact. That's I would, I, at the start, I didn't realize I shouldn't give my number to everybody, but everybody had my number. And let me just tell you, they contacted me whenever they had an issue. And if I didn't respond in the, in the amount of time they deemed necessary, I was, in a, I, was a, in, I was a bad pastor. That's, that's what they would say. And they told me, and others would tell me. This went on. 
And so at, so at a point, I, I per, never gave out my phone. They, once we got out of the home and we had an office in the building in 2010 and 11 is when I stopped and I went off social media because then people could say, well, I contacted you on social media and you didn't get, you know, and it was, be- I, I, I remember talking about this very thing to people and, and some of them could receive it and others just said, no, nah, you're supposed, you know, and I'm like, oh, oh gosh. See folks, if Jesus could break away from the needs of the crowds and pray, why can't we? And be alone, just be alone. Not having to constantly be there, you know, to fix issues. If, see, if, if Jesus meeting with his father, father was more important to Jesus than meeting with the crowds or being with family or friends or working a job, why in the world isn't it more important to us? If Jesus needed that time alone with God, don't we need it a million times more? And, and then look at the next verse, Luke 5, verse 17. One day, as he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present with him to heal. So the the Lord's, Jesus' empowered ministry flowed directly out of his time with his father. And more importantly, he did not lose intimacy with his father for the sake of success, be it in ministry or life. And yes, while it's true that we are called to sacrifice many things in our service for the Lord, one of those things is not our intimate personal relationship with him. And it's so critical that we have a personal intimate relationship because without that, we can't take territory for the Lord. See, for years, Christians have won crusades on the battlefield. We have won many battles, many wars, if you will, in the Christian life, right? But folks, too often, we haven't occupied those territories we have won the battlefield from. We have lost the objective of the war in the first place, right? Which is to take over the territory and own it for the Lord. Jesus helps us understand this. Look at this. Luke chapter 19, verses 12 through 13. Jesus says, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So the early church, the first Christians were taught, and we should be taught this too, since they were. They were taught to believe with passion that the resources the Lord gives them were to be utilized to create more resources. Did you, are you get it? And see, in other words, one of their chief concerns was not that they themselves might be released from a doomed world. <laughs> no, no, no. But they had to be ready when the Lord would come and use them to deliver others from it. They, they understood that because what God told them, they were the very instrument. They were the vehicle that God would use to change the environment. So with unwearied devotion and unflagging zeal, they have obeyed the Lord's commission to preach the gospel to every creature. The paramount purpose of their lives they embraced was what? To occupy faithfully till Jesus comes. And the Lord had asked us to occupy ourselves in the pursuit of what has worth and lasting value from an eternal perspective, folks. 
We are to do the Lord's work. We are to be about the Father's business and we are to show the love of Christ to those around us. It's not merely a job that we're to perform. It's a purpose. It's our, it, it's, what, it's what we're supposed to be doing. And it's for the Lord. It's a life surrendered to God. Whew. See, folks, as I wrap this up, let, let us just pause. You know, we probably need to admit some things after hearing this and repent. That's okay. <laughs> Embrace it. Our, our concern, let, see, let our concern not be for ourselves, but for reaching as many we can with the gospel day after day. And it, remember, remember that saying, which goes in all of life's endeavors, preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. <laughs> in other words, your life. You should have a, a life devoted to occupy because the word of God is so embraced and so much a part of your bone and marrow that all you're doing, all your actions would draw a person to know, hey, what do you know that I don't know? Because of the way you talk, because of the way you act, because of the way you carry yourselves, that's living a gospel life. Well, I hope this helped you. I hope it inspires you. I hope it brings us to a point of maybe admitting some things so that we can alter and adjust. I thank you and God bless you. Bye. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.candicesmithyman.com, Facebook at Candice Smithyman, or Instagram at Candice Smithyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel. Thank you.